This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy to us this day, for your kindness to us in this conference for the joy we have of meeting together. Lord, we pray that as we uh, look into your word and to the lives we live with our children, that you will lead us and direct us and cause us to grow in uh, understanding and fruitfulness for you and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you look at Matthew chapter 5, I'm not sure this has been read yet. I can't, I can't remember. Verses 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. Did Pastor Wilson read this at the beginning of the last session? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we have the classic text about this conference, Salt and Light. And when we think about salt and light in the church today, we have such a strange kind of understanding of what salt and light is. We have have a Buddhist kind of understanding, you know. Random acts of kindness, bumper sticker understanding, three dog night, Shambhala understanding, right? And so what? What's it say? It says, uh, how does your light shine in the halls of Shambhala, right? And so this is how we are living in this world concerning our light shining in darkness. And so uh, to be salt and light, we have to have the character of God, the character of the Almighty. And as uh, the breakout thing in the bulletin or the booklet says for this session, our children are supposed to be salty and lighty. Well, how do we have salty and lighty children in this world when what we understand as salt and light is so twisted. And you've seen, this, you've seen the bumper stickers. You understand what I'm talking about. You've, you understand the mindset of people today. It, doesn't, it isn't seated in God's word. It's, it's seated in what we feel and understand to be good. And so we talk about giving water away because that feels good. We understand that to be good. This is what it means. Well, it's good to give water away when it's good to give water away. You know, I gave water to a policeman that was uh, working out in front of our house by the entrance to the park uh, last year or the year before, I can't remember. I took some water out to him, and he was glad that I brought water to him, and he told me that I would never get a ticket from him. (laughs) And so, but that's not why I brought the water to him, you know. Uh, But um, it's good to give water to people when it's good to give water to people. But that's not salt and light. It can be. It can be part of salt and light. And so what do we say about 
our children being salt and light? How do we understand that our children will be salt and light? Are we going to teach our children uh, the four spiritual laws? Are we going to teach them the Roman road? Are you guys familiar with what I'm talking about? Are we going to teach them evangelism explosion? Are we going to teach them the wordless Bible? Are you familiar with the wordless Bible? Right? That's maybe the closest thing you could teach a child so that they can go out and start witnessing to people. So we'll take them out in our cars, you know, with their uh, four spiritual laws tracks, and we'll take them to the park and we'll set them loose. Go out there, kids. Do some explosive evangelism. All right? Well, I'm not opposed at all to our children being able to, equipped to, willing to uh, participate in evangelism, to actually speak words to people that are truths about God and their need of God. That's great. But how do our children, this big to this big, how do they evangelize? How are they salt and light? Usually, the extent to which we demonstrate intentionality on the subject of our children being salt and light is our teaching them the classic song. What's the classic song? You know. This little light of mine. Or, how does it, is that the wrong version? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? And so, hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan? You're supposed to go, not blow it out. What's the kids don't like to blow it out. They want to go. You notice there's no phrase in there like uh, this little light of mine, uh, uh, hide it under a bushel, no. Uh, uh, don't let Satan woof it out. Uh, we'll obey my mom and dad. I'm going to let it shine. There ought to be. Maybe the band can write that, right? But that's a place, I mean, how does won't let Satan woof it out be how is that practically understood by a child? Hide it under a bushel. It's fun. They get to yell no real loud at the end of the verse, but no. And that's why it's fun. But you tell them to sing, we'll obey my mom and dad. Even little ones are going to say, wait a minute, that's got teeth. That has some implication. You're really expecting something here. Because they haven't understood bushels and Satan so much as they understand whether or not they obey mom and dad. Where's the fight against internal sin? So how do we enable and magnify the shining of our children? How do we enable and magnify their light and their salt? Because it's not going to be, it's going to be in the same ways that we live but in little forms. And so what I'm going to give you is a group of not-so-random thoughts, but they're not in order of importance or necessary sequence, just so you know. But they're just for you to take, register, and understand that all of these things have relevance to enabling and equipping and magnifying our children shining in the world and being light being salt, being agents for change. There's a uh, favorite line I quote from a short story, 
and it's the title of a chapter of a short story, and we'll see who gets the prize for recognizing it. And the, the title of the chapter is, What? No Children? Anybody? What? No Children? <laughs> is that title? <laughs> Do you know where it's from? You were just eating the cookie? Yeah. It's from George MacDonald's short story, The Light Princess. And the first chapter of the short story is describing a king who is impatient with his queen because she's not born in many children. And so the king says to himself, all the queens of my acquaintance have children, some three, some seven, and some as many as twelve, but my queen has not one. I feel ill-used. Right? And so it's, it's comedy. You have to read it. It's excellent. Now, George MacDonald's theology, you know George MacDonald denied the plenary substitutionary atonement of Christ. He's very influential in literature. He was influential in C.S. Lewis coming to faith. But he had some things really wrong. Okay? But this story is delightful. And I would read it to your children because it's just delightful for them. For sh- the, the first point I want to make is for children to be salt and light in this world, they must exist. For children to be salt and light in this world, they must exist. Now, it seems like it goes without saying, right? We celebrate children, but I, I still need to say this. What? No children? Children need to exist. God says in Genesis 1, and they need to exist not just for tax purposes. (laughs) Okay? It's a wonderful benefit, but, you know. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them. Now, when he says the same thing over the other creation a few verses earlier, he doesn't say it to the other creation. He says it over the rest of the other creation. But he says the same thing. But to man, he says it to them. Okay? And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Fruitfulness of the womb is itself a testimony to God. It's a testimony to obedience to God. It testifies to our seeing how God made us to be that is fruitful and our living to be fruitful. Children themselves, their very existence is evangelistic. Okay? I've been uh, reading some things and watching some things from missions organizations who want to evangelize Muslim countries. And a lot of times what they do is they say, Let us tell you about the statistics of how the Muslims are taking over. And you know what they always go to? The Muslims are having this many children per household. 
this many children per household. And of course, the Christians aren't having any children per household. The Christians are having 0.5 and the Muslims are having 5.5. And then they start taking you down this road about how we need to go and evangelize the Muslims. We need to stop the Muslim problem. And quite often, we need to stop the Muslim problem, not because they need to know God and submit to him and be saved from their sin and delivered from judgment, but we need to stop the Muslim problem because it may affect our, our standard of living in some, at some time in the future. We might come under, is it Sharia or Sharia? Vote Sharia. Vote Sharia. It's a tie. We might come under whatever that is, law. And so we've got to stop the Muslim thing. We've got to evangelize them. We've got to go tell them about Christ. Well, it's interesting. You're going to go to a bunch of people who know one thing about God that you have denied. And what's the one thing? His very first commandment to mankind. Well, let me tell you this wonderful thing. Well, your life doesn't look so good. You don't have any children. What? No children? No children? Annie and I were recently <clears throat> at Sam's Club. And uh, as we were there, we saw a family from the church, and they have, I think, nine or ten children, I'm not sure. We think nine. If they have ten, all the better. And so they were standing there, and the children were there about their parents, and the children were very calm. Nobody was yelling, nobody was running, nobody was tipping over shopping carts, nobody was pulling anything off a rack, they were just standing there waiting for their mother and father to accomplish their business. I mean, if you saw that with one child in most stores today, you would be going, wow, good job, parent, right? And so we went up and we talked to them and loved on them. We adore the family, so we did what we normally do when we see that family. And then we're walking out of the door of Sam's Club, and there's a woman that's probably 70-ish with her, I guess, son, who's probably 45-ish, maybe. What do you think? And uh, she turns to us and she said, were all those children theirs? And we said, yes. And we said, and that's, it's just a delightful family. Delightful family. Wonderful family. And then as they're walking away, what did the woman say? You're not going to guess. No. She, said, she turned to her son and she said, if I had that many children, I would kill myself. That's what she said. And my wife and I are walking along and I'm thinking, did she just say that? And then, of course, I don't think of these things when I want to think of them, but what I wanted to say then was to the man, do you realize your mother just said that if she had eight more of you, she would kill herself. Eight more people to take her to Sam's Club to buy her supersized toilet paper roll box. But why would I say that that's a testimony of the existence of children being evangelistic? Well, you need to realize that everything the world is repulsed by that God blesses and God commands is evangelistic whether the world accepts it on the surface or doesn't accept or rejects it on the surface, 
it's evangelistic. Whether they celebrate it, but especially if on the first pass they reject it. It's, it's God's truth and they're hating it. And so it's evangelistic. It was evangelistic for that woman. She hated it. She hated it. She was completely absorbed in herself. And she could not conceive of the beauty of conception at that level. She just couldn't, couldn't accept it. Salt and light. They don't, they, being salt and light doesn't always cause people to dance a jig for joy. The initial response is usually negative. Remember Faithful when he's, Pastor Wilson mentioned him in the last hour. Remember Faithful in Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you've got to read it. If you haven't read it for a long time, you've got to read it again. You can get it on LibriVox. You can listen to it while you're mowing the lawn. You'll mow the lawn and you'll groan about your sin. Alternately with weeping about God's mercy. Right? People driving by will look at you and say, what's the matter with that guy? (laughs) What's that big large man crying on his lawnmower for? But Faithful goes to Vanity Fair with Christian. And while he's there, he dies a martyr's death, if you know the account, right, the story. And what you have after that is you have people that are spoken of who were the fruit of Faithful's blood being spilt. And so Faithful was just Faithful. He was evangelistic. He was evangelistic with his blood. And he was rejected, and the whole city cried against him, and yet at the same time, out of his death, life. Many, many sprang up to life. And you see that in the scripture with the death of Stephen. You see that with martyrdom throughout history. The existence of children is a witness. It's evangelistic. Secondly, again, not in order of importance, right? Not building, but secondly. Teach your children the fear of the Lord. God says, remember the day you stood before the Lord, before your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Teach their children what? What did they receive at Horeb? They received the law. We sing the Ten Commandments. We're not supposed to have as our highest goal to teach our children Latin or swing dancing. What we are supposed to do is teach them what God has said, what God has commanded. And so Psalm 3411, come you children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Psalm 78.5, for he established a testimony in Jacob that appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. The law's threatenings have been silenced in our churches today. And you know, 
there is supposed to be a silencing of the law's threatenings, but that silencing is supposed to be accomplished how? The silencing is supposed to be accomplished by the great Lamb of God as his blood and as his uh, resource purchase, as his payment is applied to us, we are, we are released from the condemnation of the law. We have a prayer of confession every Sunday. We confess our sins, and then we are released from the condemnation of the law. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done. Because of what has been given to us. But that is not what silences the law's threatenings today. Not the one who's taken away the sins of the world. They've been silenced by pastors, by elders, by Sunday school teachers, by youth leaders, and by mothers and fathers. We've silenced them. We've shut, up, shut off our children from knowing God's law. And in doing so, we've shut them off from knowing and understanding the cross. And from knowing grace. From knowing forgiveness. From, from knowing deliverance. Psalm 130, if, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand... O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. There's forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Can the world sense in you the fear of the Lord. Do you radiate the fear of the Lord? Does the salt of the fear of the Lord savor the people around you? Does it savor your children? Does it salt them? Does it does the does the uh, brilliance of the light of the fear of the Lord in your life shine on your children and in turn do they begin to shine in faith turning to Jesus Christ if that is so people will see it and it's evangelistic your children are salty and lighty and I don't know who came up with lighty. I think it was Jake Menzel. But that's not a word. Third, shine in the room where your lamp is standing. Shine in the room where your lamp is standing. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? I don't hear it so much anymore. I want to tell you that that's not true. It's not true. 
Now, it is true that some people contract the super-spiritualism that infects their speech in such a way that they have no ability to communicate with others, but that doesn't mean they're heavenly-minded. If a man is truly heavenly-minded, he cannot escape being of great earthly good. We are supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our minds. We're supposed to seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, all of our direction toward his kingdom and his righteousness, and then other things are added to us. To be heavenly-minded is to be good, is to be useful in this world. And this means that we have to be in the world, but not of the world. And remember Jesus in his prayer in John 17, he's asking on the behalf of his disciples first, he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, that for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they keep them... I am no longer in the world, and yet they keep themselves, are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We are in the world, but we're not of this world. Because of Jesus Christ, and because we belong to him, and that is a testimony to the world, that the world sees the difference And the world believes on God and gives glory to him. And believes that God sent Jesus Christ. Can your children be in the world, but not of the world? Can they do that? Is that possible? Well, yes. This is a difficult thing because I know with our children... um, As we watch them grow, Lord willing, they come alive. We pray that God will convert them, that they'll become aware of their need of Jesus Christ, that they'll see their sin. Sometimes it seems like they were born with it. And sometimes it seems like they're eight and they don't have any clue except for If I do that, I'm going to get a pankin', right? I'm going to get in trouble, and that seems to be the only thing they have. And yet at the same time, there's a reality that permeates. 
There's a, there is a demonstration of something that structures their life that in our homes and in our churches, they are in the world, but they're not of the world. They may be still of the world. They may be unconverted. I don't know. But there still is an adherence to something as we raise them. They're still under our care. Uh, an old dead Baptist used to say they're wards of the church, Right? Presbyterians would say, these are the covenant children. But there's a reality to those children and what they demonstrate. And just like us, they demonstrate either a complete giving over to worldliness or something else. When we were in Toledo working in a church years ago, we used to go and give away food, and we would go to the projects. And we would go to projects that were... Oh... We don't have projects like this in Bloomington. They have worse projects in some cities, but maybe not a whole lot worse. And so the projects were these huge government complexes where it would be full of mothers and children. That's what you'd have. That was the projects. There weren't fathers and husbands present. You would see men slinking, slurking in and out to get money or to have sex, but that's it. And you'd go into this project, and um, it was common. You'd see bullet holes in the door. Hey, look, there's some bullet holes, you know. It's not the kind of stuff we have at our house, bullet holes in the door. Not even accidental ones. But these are from just like random sprays of bullets, right? And I remember one year as we were going into this project, we would go in to give away food, and... and, um, We would go at the time of the month when we knew the moms were low on food. The children may be very hungry because the money had been given away to the men or had been used to buy lottery tickets, which is an evil in itself, right? And so um, I remember going one time into the very heart of this project, and we knocked on a door. And... A man opened the door, and he was a middle, middle-aged man. His name, I think, was Bill. That's what I remember. I don't remember what his wife's name was. I looked into the house, and it was, it was kept well. This, this apartment was kept well. He invited me in. I walked in. There was his wife. She was busy doing something. I, I looked into the kitchen, because you can see everything mostly in those places, right? It's just a small open room with a couple of bedrooms off of it. I looked over into the kitchen, and my jaw dropped. Why? There were two teenage boys in the kitchen, behaving well, dressed well, clean. One was standing at the sink doing the dishes. That house was not of this world. (laughs) You understand? And where they were placed is where they were shining. Because anybody in that project that ever stepped foot in that house would know, this is unusual. What's not right about this? You know, it's the Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the other. Right? We are this way. We're given by God to a place, and wherever we're given to, that's where our light is supposed to shine. That's where we should be demonstrating what he's given us to demonstrate. 
Grow where you are. You're in the world, you're not of, of it. Believers' children, seen by the world, can be a witness. A boy, teenage boy, in that project, standing at a sink, is a witness. He's a witness. Number four, the enemy of my enemy had better not also be my enemy. You've heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, this is a weird twist. The enemy of my enemy had better not also be my enemy. And what I'm talking about here is discipline. Discipline is evangelistic. In this dispensation of this present evil age, it seems that anything the world is mounting opposition against is almost certainly a godly virtue or practice. And that is certainly true of the practice of the discipline of our children. And it's coming under attack through so many places. Um, people are getting called by, child, or called by Child Protective Services because somebody's turning them in because they saw them spank their child. Right, So Child Protective Services takes down their license plate number and gives them a call. One time I was called over to talk to somebody uh, because Child Protective Services was at their house. And this wasn't about discipline, but the Child Protective Services person was there. And so he had me come sit in the car. And so we were talking for a while, and I think he was trying to get an idea from me who he was talking to in the house and... You know, these were good parents. There's another wrong with these parents. You know, somebody got a call. I got to be out there. And then he, then he used this term, and I was thinking about it as Pastor Wilson was speaking in the last hour because he was talking about how people are Orwellian and they don't know the, slight, they the slightest idea. He's talking to me in the car, and he's, he talked about how they have to take people in for adjustments. And <laughs> he's not a chiropractor. He's a child protective services guy. I said, adjustment? <laughs> I said, did you ever read George Orwell? It's like, that's awful. But this is how the world is about discipline. And this is how it's becoming. It's, it's becoming full of uh, opposition to discipline. And I think it's just bizarre. You know, here we write all these stories about the World War II generation being the greatest generation. You guys remember the, uh, who was the news anchor that wrote the book or something? Yeah, and so we talk about this greatest generation. Can you imagine if you would have sat down with the greatest generation when they were uh, marching off to war and said to them, Aren't, you know, what made you great? Was it the fact that your parents never disciplined you? And it's like we've forgotten history. We've forgotten generations and generations of parents who have just done the normal thing. But in this particular dispensation of this particular present evil age, there is a hatred in this area, in this world, in this country for disciplining children, and it's growing and growing. And so there's not faith. So Proverbs says, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. He will not die. 
You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. A child, when he gets his own way, brings shame to his mother. My daughter on Facebook was celebrating in her... My, my daughter is like Facebook evangelist woman, you know. And so she was celebrating how nice it is to be around moms who discipline their children because their children behave so well. So then she has an aunt who's really my wife's aunt, and she writes this, and I, she sent it to me in a picture form, so I couldn't print it out, but I just wanted to prove to you. There it is, okay? And she writes, and she's... She's aggressively, passively aggressive on Facebook with my daughter. I'm 71 years old, and, you know, we never had to spank any of our children and, and look at them. <laughs> Ask my wife later if you want to take a look at them, right? And, yeah, by her standards, her kids are just wonders, and I'd say by the world standards, her kids are just wonders. And I'd say, do you think any of them fear God? Maybe one. And it's like maybe. And we're, we're reaching, right? And so the world hates this. But faithful discipline is a witness. It's a witness. They see children and... It's undeniable to see children who are behaved well. It's undeniable that something's different about children who are behaved well. And why is it that we don't want children to behave well? Why is it that we're fighting against children behaving well? Well, we're not fighting against that. We're fighting against parents. We're fighting against authority. We're fighting against God. But to discipline our children, the fruit of that discipline, even the celebration of that discipline is evangelistic in this world. And the world will hate it. Or a good bit of the world will hate it. Number five, the demonstration of your love of authority is evangelistic. The demonstration of your love of authority is evangelistic. Um, This kind of connects to what Pastor Wilson was talking about in the last hour when he said no envy. And so one of the things I like to teach people about is, and many of you have heard it many times, there's an inextricable relationship between faith and authority. You just can't separate them. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him in Luke 17, increase our faith. They say, increase our faith. And Jesus says, oh, if you had faith of a mustard seed, you'd say to this tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea. And then Jesus pulled out a Kenneth Hagin book and he said, now just read this book and your faith will be increased. You may know who Kenneth Hagin is, famous faith guy, right? Um, no, that's not what Jesus said. He said... 
If you had the faith of a mustard seed, if you'd say to this tree, it would be uprooted and thrown into the sea. He did say that. Then what did he do? Well, then he said something really strange that for years I didn't understand. He said, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself to serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Okay, now compare the request of the disciples to what Jesus says in his parable. Increase our faith. Oh, okay, yeah, faith like a mustard seed, your tree goes and throw into the sea. Now let me tell you this story. If you had a slave and you said, and you wouldn't say, come and eat with me, you'd say, serve me and make sure you're clean when you serve me. You just came into the field. I don't want your dirty hands serving me and your dirty clothes serving me. And after you served me and I've eaten and I've drank, well, then you can eat and drink. And the slave doesn't say, what? What's the slave say? He doesn't protest. He just says, oh, we're just unworthy slaves. What does that have to do with increasing my faith? That's, that's every time I read Kenneth Hagin, that's what he writes. He refers to that parable. I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding, right? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, Jesus is just saying to them, okay, you want, it, you want your faith to increase? Know your play, place. Know your place. It starts by you knowing your place. And I thought about Pastor Wilson because he was talking about envy. And we say, he was saying, believers, don't envy. And envy has everything to do with getting out of where I am and what I have and into where I'm not and what I don't have. And so the basis of faith, Jesus says, is to know your place. And so he's talking then late, uh, earlier, it's illustrated as he meets with uh, a centurion's um, representative. The centurion heard about Jesus in Luke 7, and he sent some Jewish elders asking them to come and save the life of his slave who was about to die. And they came to Jesus, earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way to them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself Further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and he turned and he said to the crowd which was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel. Have I found such great understanding of authority? But that's not what he says, is it? I've never understood such great faith. And he healed the servant. But the point is, what did the centurion know that made Jesus say, this man has great faith? What the centurion knew was his place. <laughs> I know who I am. I'm a man under authority, and I am a man who has authority over others. I know who I am, and I know who you are. 
And all you have to do is say the word. I'm not even worthy to come to you in person. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, this man understands faith. Faith is knowing who we are and embracing it in God. We live truthfully. We don't envy. We don't aspire. We are who we are. We're under authority. We embrace authority. And so submission to authority is evangelistic. How we submit to authority is, um, whether or not we submit to authority is something that is seen and recognized by the people around us. And it's seen and recognized by your children. They see whether you reject authority or not. They see whether you're complaining about the laws that are laws that are just laws that the government makes that aren't unjust. They see how you complain against the pastor. They see how you complain against the elders. They see how you complain against your boss. And what they look at is, and they say is, oh, this, was, this is what it must be to be a Christian. Well, it's not. <laughs> it's not at all. But if they see you demonstrating a willingness to love God's authority in your life and submit to it, if you go with them out to the squad car and have them carry the bottle of water for the policeman, he'll say, I won't give you a ticket and I won't give your kid a ticket when he grows up. If you go out there with them, they will see you honoring authority. Any way that you can honor authority. You see the policeman. You speak about the policeman as someone you respect. You see the fireman. You say, I respect the fireman. You see the, the uh, official. You respect the official. You see the judge. You respect the judge. You see the pastor. You respect the pastor. You see the elders. You respect the elders. You see your husband. You respect your husband. You see your boss. You respect your boss. Your children will see all of that, and they'll say, ah. And they will start respecting the authorities in their life. And guess what? If children respect authorities in their lives today, does anybody notice? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Submission to authority is evangelistic. We, we uh, magnify the, the, the brilliance of the light of the witness of our children when we teach them to love authority. And they themselves love it. Number six, devotional practice in our homes is evangelistic. As we evangelize our children in our homes, as we sit at our tables and read devotional books and read the scripture and pray, as we sit and have conversations with our families about spiritual things, as they see us read the Bible ourselves, as we try to get them on the track to reading the Bible, as we have people in our homes, as we have them friends in our homes, do you have neighborhood kids ever in your home to eat a cheese sandwich? And do you pray with your children and the neighborhood friends, giving thanks to God for the cheese sandwich? And do the neighborhood friends look at your children and say, who is this God that you give thanks to as you eat your cheese sandwich? Well, they don't say that, but they wonder. 
And then you have people come into your house who are your boss or your friends or whoever. And, you, and you, they sit down to eat your meal and they're not believers. And you say to them, well, we're going to read from the scripture tonight. We always read from the scripture. Or we mostly read from the scripture. Or we're going to read this devotional tonight. And we read a devotional. We're Christians. I want you to join us as we read this devotional. Listen to what we have to say. We read it. We say, now we're going to pray and give thanks to God for our food. And they sit there and they watch you and they, they bow their heads and they say, Amen. And they go away and they say, Oh, there's something in their lives that they're devoted to. When people come around you and they tell you about uh, difficulties and pains and fears and uh, 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 suffering in their lives... With your children there, do you look at them and say, can I pray for you? People hardly ever say no if you ask them if you can pray for them. They hardly ever say no. I don't know if I've ever had anyone tell me no, ever, if I can pray for you. The architect that's built, working on our church building with us, we're in a meeting, and he's sick. He's really sick, and so I said, well, let's pray. Let's pray for you. Mike Bowles is sick, too. The Both of them were sick for three weeks simultaneously. And so now we pray every time we meet with the architect, right? Our devotional life is evangelistic. Our children live with us with our devotional life. And they become part, it just becomes part of their... Uh, Lattice, the lattice work of their lives, the, the uh, uh, fabric of their lives. Number seven, confession of sin is evangelistic. If you believe and acknowledge your sin, if you believe in and acknowledge your sin in front of and to your children, you will be evangelizing them. You will be teaching them the value of God, of Christ. They, in turn, from that testimony and from other testimonies given to them, will turn in faith to God themselves. I think it's not practiced very often. I think that it's very very infrequent that we evangelize our children by confessing our sin to them. When I sin against Annie, I'll make it a point to try to apologize and ask for her forgiveness in front of the children if the sin was in front of the children. They watch that exchange. And that, when our children are mostly bigger. But I still do it because I still sin. And so our children watch that exchange. And it's evangelistic to them. They see your humility, and they see that you are driven to the cross, and they begin to understand what that means and why. That your sin plagues you, and that you must go to the cross. 
Humility is found at the foot of the cross. You want your children to be inoculated against self-righteous, self-righteousness and pride? Don't be self-righteously proud. Confess your sins to your children. When you sin against your children, look at them in the eye and say, Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Are you desperate for the cross? I watched the uh, graduation uh, service of the pastor's college a couple of months ago, and Nate Harlan was preaching, and I was watching over Skype uh, because we were in Myrtle Beach. I had booked our vacation right over the pastor's college graduation because I'm inept. Okay. So we're there, and I'm watching it. And at some point, Nate said something like, good preaching will make the hearers desperate for the cross. And I texted the pastors here, and I said, take away line from the sermon. Good preaching will make the hearers desperate for the cross. Well, when your children hear you confessing your sin, it's because you're desperate for the cross. When I'm confessing my sin, by that point, trust me, I'm humbled. If I have to say it in front of somebody, I'm humbled. I'm desperate. I want forgiveness. Okay? And when we say it to our children, it's evangelistic. Confession of sin is evangelistic. I remember one time I sinned against my insurance agent, who's a tall blonde woman on the south side of Bloomington. I groused at her. I won't tell you the whole story because we're out of time. But the fact of the matter is I couldn't go and apologize to her that day because the agency closed and it was Friday. I had to wait until Monday, but I decided I'm going to go on Monday. So Monday I walk in and I say, hello, I'm the guy. Remember, you know, she's at a cubicle in this corner. It's all open, and I'm the guy that groused against you. I came to ask for your forgiveness. Well, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. I'm embarrassed, everybody. I'm wondering who's hearing the conversation, right? I said, no, you have to understand. I... I want you to forgive me. I sinned against you. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Whenever you apologize to somebody and ask for their forgiveness, you be sure and do the work all the way through. And I'll tell you when it's through. It's through when they look at you in your eyes and they say, I forgive you. But there's a reason why they don't want to do that. Because confession of sin is evangelistic. When you go to somebody and you say, I sinned against you and I would want you to forgive me, they, in order to give you forgiveness, they have to, they have to look down into the, I say it's the gaping wound you've plunged your knife into their thigh. They have to look with you down into the gaping wound and see its reality. They're not just going to you know, let it heal up in a gnarly way. They're, just, they're looking because we're now going to suture the wound shut. And they have to look. But you know what they see when they look down into that gaping wound? They see the very same things that you see when somebody comes to you and says, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? What do they see? They see all of their sin. When somebody comes and asks for my forgiveness, I just think, oh, I am so wicked. But you go to your insurance agent and you say, would you forgive me for my sin against you? She's got to travel with you out over this uh, uh, platform and look down not just at the sin that you sinned against her, but she has to look and acknowledge that there is such a thing before God. 
and that is accomplished against one another. And when she acknowledges that, it comes back on her and she has to say, well, what am I going to do about mine? But then she looks at you and she says, yeah, I see it's a desperate thing. I want you to be released from that. I forgive you. She looks in your eyes and says it. Then it's done between you, but it's evangelistic. Do you understand? She has seen something eternal, something of huge consequence in the middle of her paperwork that day. And she'll go home and she'll say, Bob, something really weird happened at work today. Right? Your children want to know that you share in their condition. They'll get to a certain age, and when they become aware that they have the condition, and what's the condition? Sin, rebellion. When their eyes open to that, there's a time, especially when their eyes really open to that, and they see that it's consequential before God, they're going to be looking to see whether you're a hypocrite. And they need you to say right then, I know your condition, Mary. I know it. I know your condition. Because I have your condition. But thanks be to God. This is why Jesus died. God brought him back from the dead. And that's the power that will bring us back from the dead. And it's his death that atones for our sins. And you and me both, we both have this condition. Let's make a covenant together that when we sin, we'll confess and ask for forgiveness. Let's make a covenant together that we'll go to God. And children can be wonderful <laughs> joys uh, demonstrating faith before God because they're often just completely unadulterated by the years of buildup of resistance that we have, right? But it's evangelistic. Number eight, give your children to the church. I don't have time for this other than to say, from the time they're born, from the time before they're born, I don't care if you have them baptized, and I have a position on this, I don't care if you have them baptized, if you have them dedicated, or if you do neither one, give your children to the church, in your heart, you, you commit to God that the church has your children in its care. And that you will submit yourself to that care and depend on all of those people to help you with the work of your children. If you start before they're born and continue through their infancy and childhood, you won't have the problem that we see over and over again with teenage with parents of teenage children, when their kids start to really demonstrate the sins of their family. It's like, it's like in the teenage years, our kids become movie screens. And, and suddenly, the story of how horrible a parents we are just comes up on the screen for everybody to watch. And this is the Corel movie. Get some popcorn. It's going to be a doozy. And the Corrells are sitting there. <laughs> I didn't know there were cameras rolling. There were. Your children. 
and they get to be teenagers, they just play the move, they play it back to everybody. You think it's bad when they're three and they say those embarrassing things, and four to the Sunday school teacher, what they say, you know, and we go, oh, I can't believe they said that. Wait till they're 16, and their sins are in technicolor, and their sins are your sins. And if you haven't learned to give your children to the church then, because at that time, you see, there's a transition taking place. Your children are becoming adults. Pretty soon, they're the age of majority. Pretty soon, they're not even answering through you anymore. The elders are talking to them directly. And you have to deal with that issue of trust. And if you haven't been dealing with that issue of trust with the elders for years, suddenly, boom, when the movie's showing, you've got to deal with it. Guess what? You're going to do what we've had families do, and they've left. They've just left. As we've had to try to help them with their teenagers, they just couldn't take it. And they left. And it's not because we were wrong in trying to help them. The elders have a responsibility to be pastoral to our teenagers. They weren't wrong. And it was done lovingly, but it was just too much to have that movie showing. You understand? Give your children to the church. It's evangelistic. For your children and for the world, the world is going to see this. You know, again, Doug was talking about uh, uh, molecules and uh, interactive code, uh, interdependence, not codependence, interdependency, right? And that's the church. We rely on one another for our children. Number nine, teach your children to care for the sick and the poor. Take them with you to the hospital. Show them how. Uh, we take pastor's college men to the hospital. We talk to pastor's college men about how to talk to families who are grieving when they've lost a loved one. Uh, you take your children to these places, set it up so that you're going to go visit a family and take them something. Find a family that you think would be blessed by something. I don't care if they're super poor or if, if they just, you just think, wow, they probably never get anything but Kraft macaroni and cheese or whatever. Take your children and give them something. Go to the hospital. Go and visit the sick. Kimmy gets dragged to so many baby births. Because that's, that's what we do here a lot, right? Not the actual birth. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm not a doula. I've been writing a song. Doula, oh doula, oh do deliver me. Boom, boom, boom. I actually have more, but I'm not going to sing it. Oh, no. I've got another one, too, but I'm not going to sing that one. It's, you know, where weird pastors go about doulas. You know, it's like... But no, Kimmy, we don't go to the births. We go and visit the moms after they have their babies. I always try to go visit the moms, and, you know, they just did an amazing thing, and I go to them, and I say, good job. It's a wonderful thing for me to do, because I'm at a grandpa age, and so I get to do something with all these young moms that is just so much of a blessing to me. And I get to go and say, good job, way to go, what a wonderful blessing. We pray with them, but we take Kimmy. And she holds the baby, right? Now, you, you may not want to take nine kids or something to go, and, but figure it out. Figure it out, demonstrate with them. It's evangelistic. Our love for the poor, God loves the poor. 
He loves the poor. God cares about the sick. God cares about the orphan. Read it. It's in there. He cares about it. These are all things, and there's a ton more that you could go and think about of how your children learn to be salt and light at your feet and how they are used to demonstrate who God is to the world around them. And so just think about that. Think about how you can start to put some practice, some action into that. If you're not doing it already, if you are, bless you, that's great. Do it some more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're kind to us in giving us children. And Lord, we pray that you will uh, make us faithful with their raising to teach them of you, to teach them to fear you, to teach them your law, to direct them to Jesus and the cross so that they might have deliverance from their sin. Father, we pray for families that you will make our families strong, that you will make our families witnesses to you and to your glory. I pray for mothers that you will strengthen them in their work. It is hard work, Father. Make them strong. Give them joy in it. I pray for women who are married who have not had the privilege of having children and perhaps uh, just long to have a child. Father, we pray that if it be your will, you would open their wombs and give them children. And Lord, give them mercy. We pray for all of us, Father, that we will all look at all the children around us and see them as our responsibility. That we will be faithful in the work. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org dot o r g